Coming up is my chat with Rob Schwartz. So Rob should be fairly well known to anyone listening to this. Uh, CEO of uh, TBWA Chart Day New York, host of Disruptor Series podcast uh, as well. We talked about, did a little different different format this time, um, an experiment in a Desert Island Discs type uh, format. So me and Rob both big Clash fans. So we decided to base the talk around that, but obviously weave in uh, Rob talking about his career, his point of view on the world. It was great fun uh, to do. I also got Rob to pick uh, five Clash tunes that we pepper uh, throughout. Um, so see what you think of his picks. Anyway, quite like this format. Um, maybe do more of them like this. Um, Rob Schwartz, King of New York. How's it going? It's going uh, well. It's great. To, great to see you. Yeah, uh, likewise. You too. But, but your uh, your lockdown beard's a bit more impressive than mine. Oh yeah, no. Uh, uh, and and I, I've got kind of major lockdown hair as well. Yeah. Well, I I have no hair, so <laughs> I only have half the problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're also using uh, far less shampoo. I mean, uh, well, I suppose all all the money's going now. Yeah. I did because every time, you know, I I kind of I just sort of chicken out and shave the beard off, so it never gets past a sort of a week of thing, you know. So anyway, tell us a little bit um, about the situation in New York City in terms well, of work uh, and movement and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'll tell you, it's um, it was grim. Uh, a few months ago, but I think uh, right now, whatever we are, week twenty. Oh my God, week twenty-one. I don't know what that was. Week twenty-one of the uh, of the quarantine. Uh, the city's much livelier, yeah. and um, uh, we're not back at the office. We're still we're still doing work from home. I've, I've been yeah. up to the agency uh, one or two times, but um, yeah, the city. Uh, it's not back one hundred percent, but uh, it's certainly uh, alive. Yeah, what's what's morale like amongst uh, amongst the agency uh, in terms of you know working for home suits some people, um, well, other people, you know I think uh, maybe sort of feed off of the sort of energy of you know being in a group uh, more. Is that, what sort yeah, of feedback you know, are you getting? It's it's definitely not ideal, mm. and um, I think uh, people are. Uh, you know, they would much rather be uh, in the agency. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of muddling through. And I think yeah. people have, you know, started to master whether it's Zoom or you know, WebEx or yeah. Meet, whatever. Uh, people have kind of mastered it. And, um, but it's, it's just not the same. I think part of what makes advertising great is the energy you get, you yeah. know, when you're in the office. Yeah. 
and trying to do, you know, I just know myself, you know, trying to do, because a lot of what I do kind of, uh, you know, sort of planning side, you know, you do kind of workshops and all that. And it's just, mm. I've, try, I've tried to do it over video. It's impossible, really. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's quite you know, handy. We, you know, I can just say to people, well, listen, we, you know, we can't do workshops or anything. So you just have to do as I say, and that's it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it works for that. We, yeah. We've done some workshops. There's some interesting software that you can kind of hive, uh, you know, uh, you know, some of the folks off and they can work amongst themselves and come back in, but yeah. you just don't, you know, it's just not what humans are built for. You know? No. Yeah. That's it. I, d I have this uh, sort of uh, hypothesis, right? Which mm. is, um, you know, because so much of communication is nonverbal, right? It's like mm. facial movements and mm. things, but, uh, and it's kind of when, you know, the, our brains are getting tricked by a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional thing. And so uh, all of those little receptors that are looking for those little non-verbal cues are, on, are really on edge looking for them, but then they're not satisfied because they're not getting them. You know? mm. so. I, I like your theory. I, I also think, though, that um, everybody's narcissism kicks in, so everybody's so interested in looking at themselves. That yeah. they, you know, if they're not looking for the verbal cues, they're just looking at their at their hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, you know. Uh, um, what I always noticed was, uh, you know, these people on LinkedIn who their message is so urgent that they have to tell you it while they're walking through the shopping center or something you know, about <laughs> how they're gonna how they're gonna sort of generate leads for you or something. It's like it couldn't wait till you get to the office. You know? But but they're, they're doing that. But all the time they're not looking into the camera. They're looking at the little thing right itself it's, it's so funny it's very sort of postmodern phenomenon that i don't know what that is <laughs> yeah, yeah i i haven't uh i haven't quite figured linkedin out yet i've uh I, you know i'm on there there are things i like about it but uh i don't uh i don't feel it the way i feel you know, i love twitter so uh um, yeah yeah linkedin I'm, I'm i'm still not quite sure i think i think twitter LinkedIn is far more of a performance, you know, and I think you have to be comfortable with, mm. with that. That's saying you can't actually, despite 90% of the conversation on LinkedIn being about authenticity, it's the most inauthentic uh, uh, space. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's enough uh, mucking about. We're going to get to the to the, the meat of the thing today. So, mm. so we... Uh, the haggis on. of the thing, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what what we've come to know um, in the the period that we've uh, conversed online and known each other is we have a couple of shared uh, interests. Uh, one of them being mm. advertising, obviously, that employs us both. The other thing being music, and uh, and one band in particular. So when we talked about this, we thought it might be fun to um, to sort of weave that in uh, in a sort of desert island discs type style. So you're going to pick five class tunes we're going to play throughout the, the show uh, and give us a bit of a story around each one, what, what it sort of means. And we'll still talk about some some ad stuff as well. But I wanted to first, you know, I guess that because the music that kind of sticks with us tends to be the stuff that we, uh, that, you know, that we were into in our formative kind of years, teenage mm. years, you know, and uh, I mean, I guess the reason for that is because um, 
there were so many novel experiences and everything around that time. So it's just wired a bit tighter uh, in our minds. So just to sort of start with, let's go take a step back in time. And, to, and so the young Rob, you know, 12, mm. 13, 14 or whatever, what was, um, what was sort of musically and culturally going on when you were sort of growing up? And uh, because, so you, you kind of made your name in advertising out on the West Coast, really. Mm. But you're a New York boy originally, aren't you? True. Yeah. True. So, so just give us a sense of the, of the 12, 13 year old uh, Rob running about uh, whatever it was uh, um, that, you, that you grew up. Well, 12, 13 year old Rob was um, living in New York City. Uh, this is around 1978. And, um, you know, the first image, if I think about that moment uh, in my life, uh, is probably Bruce Springsteen on the cover of Darkness on the Edge of Town. Yeah. So I think there was, there was, there was a Bruce moment. Um, and um, a few years later, which segues into the band we're going to talk about, uh, there was a girl who lived around the corner from me. Her name was Lynn, Lynn Whitehead, and she turned me on to The Clash. Right. And, uh, and I think I would just say, you know, between kind of this Bruce piece and The Clash piece, uh, there was quite a bit of um, Elvis Costello. Uh, and what I'd come to realize much, much later uh, in my 50s, I was listening to an inordinate amount of Graham Parker. Right. Okay. Because yeah. I hadn't listened to Graham Parker in years. I mean, yeah. years. And uh, as I'm diving through Spotify, I don't know, I stumbled upon, uh, you know, I don't know, with Local Girls or uh, one of yeah. the other songs, uh, Protection, I think it was. Yeah. And I knew every lyric. It was, yeah. it was eerie. Yeah, the, the, I remember, I mean, the Graham Parker, I remember the first thing was, there was a little seven inch EP called the Pink Parker. It was pink mm. vinyl. And the lead track was Hold Back the Night, mm. you know, which is a kind of Northern Soul kind of thing. But it was kind of weird how in, in those early punky times, that was just seemed like part of like new wave kind of, you know, it wasn't sort of, it wasn't angry punk, but it was still part of, a, of the canon. But you listen to it now and you think that's a really, sophisticated smooth soul oh God, yeah. sound you know? <laughs> how did how did that all get lumped in together well i i, I love that you say that it was punk because i, I feel like uh, i remember distinctly you know seeing uh london you know inflamed with this punk rock movement you know yeah. and these yeah. kids with mohawks uh and then there was like an immediate um repackaging of punk uh in the states as new wave yeah and New Wave was as disparate as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dan the Torpedoes was considered a New Wave record. Yeah. And somebody like Graham Parker, which uh, I had come to realize much later was something called pub rock, which was never marketed in the States yeah. as such. Yeah. But, I mean, it was only afterwards it was called pub rock, you know. At the oh, time, is that so? Yeah. At the time, it was just, you know, it just was what it was, you know. It's funny, I was listening to... Um, the uh, uh, Bob Marley, right? On the mm. flip side of, uh, you know, t we were talking about B-sides earlier on, B-side mm. of jamming, right? It was a tune mm. called Punky Reggae Party. 
Oh yeah. And, uh, when she wrote after coming to London in '77 and meeting uh, uh, the Clash and the Pistols and everything, and it references a, a few different bands in the in the lyric. But Doctor Feelgood is one of the ones that he. Wow. Wrote. And uh, and then uh, Clem Burke, uh, the Blondie drummer, had apparently said mm. that the first Doctor Feelgood album, he picked it up. Blondie had been. Uh, over to the UK to do a couple of shows, and he picked it up there and brought it back. And said everyone in CBGBs was just in awe of this Doctor Feelgood album. You know, it's kind of like the weird, the unsung heroes of, uh, of, of that era. You know? By the way, I, I have um, this feeling that uh, there's going to be this resurgence of the music from 1977 to around 1981. It's it's a somewhat forgotten moment because i think you had this um vector of disco uh another vector of the beginnings of of rap and hip-hop uh yeah. you have rock and roll you know you know trying to hold on desperately uh and there's this kind of new wave thing some of it wasn't actually quite new wave that i think we're, we're going to go back to i actually heard that uh, that uh, martin scorsese is going to do a film on uh, david johansson uh, and the new york dolls yeah. You know, so it's just, it's just this kind of weird moment yeah. in those late 70s. Yeah. So when we were emailing back and forward before we did this, I mean, there was an interesting thing that you sent me. We're looking at sort of eras and, and decades, you know, like even mm. from the pre-rock and roll uh, times. And, you know, you talked about Woody Guthrie. And mm. then, you know, and then obviously it's like, you know, Elvis and Little Richard and, and all that. And, you know, and then Beatles, Stones, everything, Dylan from the 60s. I read it interestingly. If you look at the British album charts mm. from that from that period, in between the years 1963 and 1966, the only album that wasn't by either the Stones, Beatles, or Dylan that reached number one was the soundtrack to uh, the uh, Mary Poppins movie. <laughs> So that was that was the, the only thing, but I just you know I I wonder. I, I, you know, I have another little hypothesis about this, but I won't go into it now. But but definitely music as a cultural force, you know, amongst mm -hmm. you know, as particularly amongst the youth, you know, because I just I just wonder if it's uh, you know it's a typical old geezer thing to say to say mm -hmm. oh well, today's music is rubbish, you know, but. It's not that it's rubbish; it's just invisible. Uh, yeah, you know, or or I mean, I guess white music mostly. You know, I think yeah. possibly, uh, you know, there's still in in rap and R and B. Uh, it's probably still more part of a, a culture in there. But but in terms of you know something that was going to come along like the Beatles or punk or Springsteen mm. or anything, I don't know where that's coming from. Mm. Uh, it doesn't seem to matter as much. Mm. You know, when I got, when I got your note, uh, as you invited me on here, which again, thank you. It's great to be here and chat with you about this stuff. Um, I was thinking, uh, just like you, I'm like, where, where is the music? I, I was reminded of, uh, there's a great lyric. Uh, it's in a semi-unloved U2 uh, recent album, but there's a, there's a lovely song. It's a great rock and roll song called the miracle of joey ramon and there's right. a great lyric uh which says uh you know uh, is it uh, you know the lyric is a song made sense out of the world yeah 
And, you know, as I'm sitting here on Union Square and the world is exploding, uh, I'm looking for an artist to make sense out of this. Yeah. And we don't quite have it. Yeah. I th- I, you know, and people will say, ah, oh, but look at like Beyonce, right? And, uh, you know, and she's took out this new sort of, mm. uh, sort of visual album thing mm. and, and launched it on Disney Plus. Yeah, uh, Black is King, I think. Yeah, I say, well, you know, fair enough, right? But that, there's nothing particularly rebellious or anything about, mm. you know, that is, um, I mean, that is corporate R&B. You know, that, and that's fine, you know, but it's, I, mm-hmm. I don't, to me, you know, it's not public enemy, put it that way. Right. You know, right. <laughs> which is, uh, you know, which is, and maybe that's just a very sort of biased, you know, Gen X or kind of, you know, punky person thing to say, you know, to, to, to judge sort of rap music by punk music standards uh, or whatever. But, yeah. you know, but the likes of Public Enemy and NWA and then De La Soul and everything. I loved all that, all that uh, stuff, you know, it seemed like an, just an extension of, uh, of all the same things, you know, that, I, that I've been into. Anyway, yeah. sorry, we, we, we've gone off track. Yeah, we've gone off track. You're um, so the girl who introduced you to the clash. What was that? Tell us the story there. Well, I mean, we 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 would uh, we went to high school uh, in in Riverdale, which is just north of uh, the city. It's in the uh, the southern part of the Bronx, not the South Bronx, just the southern part of the Bronx. Uh, so we we would uh, you know ride this bus, or if we missed the bus, we would uh, wind up taking the subway. And uh, it was great because you got to, you know, have uh, decent conversations about 40 minutes yeah. uh, uh, either way. And uh, she was ahead of the game. And yeah. uh, I remember she uh, was very interested in, in this band, The Clash uh, and Black Flag. And um, at the time, again, I was uh, listening to just a lot of, uh, you know, kind of old school rock and roll mm. between Bruce and the Stones and um, whoever else. Uh, but there was something about this band that was compelling, and um, she, uh, you know, played me some. I don't remember the first thing she played, but she played me something on a, you know, cassette recorder. Maybe it was a Sony Walkman, mm-hmm. and it had one foot in what I was used to as kind of rock and roll. You know, I yeah. heard the guitars, heard the bass, heard the drums, but it had something that was, I would just say, other. Yeah. And I was just really attracted to it, and th- that's how I first got into. Yeah. Uh, the clash. So how close, I mean, around that, that period, so if you're talking about 78, 79 or whatever, and you're, so you, you were living uh, close to the Bronx, I mean, that's Africa, Bambata sort of land, and all of that stuff would have been kicking off at that time as well. How visible was that early hip-hop sort of culture? Well, I think it was uh, it was not as visible. I think what was visible was uh, village people right. um, and um, the Sugar Hill Gang. I think that, right. uh, you know, there was some, you know, plenty of kind of radio rap at the time that was that was starting to emerge. Yeah. Uh, and again, the, you know, the other um, kind of cultural force was, was disco. Yeah, and uh, you know, as a as a white boy growing up, uh, you know, you were forced to take a stand. You know, this yeah. this was during the whole kind of disco yeah. sucks. And yeah. even if 
you know, you would listen to, you know, Rolling Stones, Some Girls, and you thought, hey, you know, Miss You's not, that's a pretty good song. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't like Miss You. You had to yeah. like, you know, When the Whip Comes Down, and, uh, yeah. you know, you I could like Some Girls. Yeah, I got that, I, uh, I got that album a couple of years ago. They did a sort of reissue, the mm. 40th anniversary or whatever reissue, mm. and it had an extra CD. With, oh, like, yeah? with bonus stuff from the same sessions that was unused, oh, yeah? right? 15 songs. And I think it, that album that didn't, uh, that none of it got released was absolutely brilliant. It was better than, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, better yeah? than, than anything else they did after that, you know? Yeah. I think what a yeah. prolific uh, time, you know? Oh my God, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the, what, we, what, what became very interesting though about The Clash was that, um, even though they were a very uh, London-based English band, they were also a New York band. Yeah. And um, I think that there was something about their connection to New York yeah. uh, that I got connected to them. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that seems like an appropriate point to for you to play your first tune. Yeah. Yes. And... and uh, so first of all, tell us what it is. We'll whack it on, and then afterwards you can you can tell us why why this is uh, important to you. My my first one is is a crowd pleaser. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, should I stay or should I go? Okay. Should I go? Which was uh, from Combat Rock album. Combat Rock. Yeah, it was kind of a hit twice because uh, you know around about the first time, and then it was used in a Levi's ad, um, in uh, a couple of years later. Um, Yay, advertising! It was a hit again. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so you know, the Clash, Rebel Rock, but still, uh, you know, it, can, it gives comfort to likes of us, you know, because we can say, well, hey, you know, to uh, you know, Clash did it, so <laughs> we can still be rebels and, and, and work in the machine as well. <laughs> well, what I thought was, uh, you know, great about this song was, um, you know, just the energy of it, the simplicity mm. of it. Uh, and, um, you know, this was during a time where MTV was just starting to uh, emerge uh, as a real cultural force. I mean, it started in 1980, but this is 1982. And this was a big part of uh, of our lives growing up. Yeah. I mean, I think what, what TikTok is today, this is what MTV was and more. Mm. And between, um, even though I, you know, I, I always thought that Should I Stay or Should I Go was a better song than Rock the Casbah. Rock the Casbah had a, had a better video. Should I Stay or Should I Go had kind of this uh, stadium thing going. But what I do remember uh, was uh, again, being very inspired by the aesthetic of uh, MTV, the shorts, the uh, you know, all the different little yeah. bits and bobs that you could watch, all the eye candy, and for the Clash in particular, you know, they were they were driving around New York City in this you know kind of old yeah. school you know late fifties uh, Cadillac, 
Uh, and again, I think it was this connection of, wow, this very English band is somehow a very New York band. Yeah. yeah. So that's so, uh, that's my first yeah. song. I think that clip comes from uh, the Shea Stadium. Uh, yes. Show when they when they were backing up the Who, on one of the Who's many farewell tours. <laughs> I think it was their first one. Yeah, they're still doing them to this day. Yeah. I, I saw the Clash play with the Who, and uh, um, I mean it was it was magnificent because I love the Who as well. Because you know yeah. in, uh, in 1983 they came out with a with a terrific film called uh, The Kids Are All Right. I'm sure. Yeah. You've seen it, and um, you know, 1978, The Who came out with uh, "Who Are You," which is a uh, you know a magnificent yeah. record, uh, but they fell out of favor. Yeah, mm. I mean, for whatever happened, I think maybe it was the Clash, the Police. You know, this new wave, yeah. uh, you know, showed up, and you couldn't like uh, that, that old school, um, uh, you know, album rock. But when the Kids Are All Right showed up, this yeah. kind of reasserted The Who. Yeah, well, it kind of reminded everyone, you know, of of uh, you know of everything else that they'd done. Yeah, I think you're right. I yeah. think "Who Are You" was probably the last was their last great album. You know, there's been the odd song here and there since yeah. then, but that, 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 that was the one. Yeah. Last, so, I think the last Keith Moon, last Keith Moon yeah, records. That's Maybe of course, that, yeah, yeah, that had something to do with it. So anyway, running around uh listening to to new wave and bruce springsteen on the bus and everything uh you know 13 14. so what um when it came time to sort of decide what you were going to do with your life um because you studied but not in new york did you moved away from home to do that did you yeah i went to a uh, university of michigan yeah and then uh and then getting into advertising what was your sort of road in there how did that how did that come about uh well you know through my series of magnificent failures yeah. i wound up uh, getting into advertising and uh i think the first moment uh i got in was the moment that uh i stood up during my uh law school exam uh and just i think on whatever question 38 just said, you know, I don't want to do this. And I okay. tore up my, my paper and I walked out. And, um, you know, I had some uh, aspirations. I was going to be a novelist. I failed at that. I was going to be a playwright. I failed at that. I was mm -hmm. going to be a screenwriter. I failed at that. Uh, and I took a job at a publishing company. And um, it was not a very good job. But I used to write this little stupid sales newsletter once a week. And there was a woman at the at the company who said, you know, you're kind of funny and a good writer. Maybe you should think about advertising. Mm. And I thought, oh, hmm, interesting. Mm. And she had a friend, a guy named Tony Romeo, who was teaching down at the School of Visual Arts, SVA. Uh, and I started taking some night night, night classes in concepting. Mm. And I loved it. And I so thought it was What great. kind of things did they teach you? What was the what was the sort of curriculum? Um, well, it was then... straight concepting so usually uh there were there were a few teachers the two that i recall the most uh one was this guy tony romeo and the other was it was a was a famous uh, guy here in new york named sal devito and um right. what they would do is they would give you a a product you know crayola crayons or uh whatever it was and uh you know you were kind of you know uh thrown into the deep end yeah 
And what you didn't quite realize then, what I learned much later was, oh, okay, here's advertising. Uh, fucked up picture, straight words, or yeah. <laughs> fucked up words, straight picture. Yeah. You, you did, I didn't have the brain power to yeah. uh, boil it down to that. So you stumbled around in the dark yeah. a bit and uh, took your lumps and, you know, if it was particularly bad, Sal would take out his Zippo lighter and light the tissue, uh, you know, right there. You know, you used to do this, you know, your tissue comp, you'd light oh, it on yeah. fire in the room or, you know, <laughs> that's the way it was. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Right, let's let's have another let's have another tune. What's this one? So my second one is Pressure Drop, uh -huh. and uh, it's one of the great uh, Clash covers by another band I love, Toots yeah. and the Maytals. Yeah. Um, and uh, the reason why I would uh, share Pressure Drop with you guys is that uh, I was working on a spot. I was a creative director. Uh, at the time, and we had a, an excellent uh, film for a, a Nissan um, uh, SUV. And the spot itself uh, was really well done. It was uh, a car that's driving around the city and the camera pulls back and you realize that the car is in this maze. Right. Really, it's really, really wonderful visual sleight of hand. And we didn't have a song for it. The, the client really wanted a piece of music. Uh, and I thought, why don't we you know, just, just throw pressure drop on there yeah. and um you know the creative team was sort of like you know oh, you know old man music and you know sure enough uh pressure drops on the spot and it was magnificent yeah. and uh, it really you know gave the right feel on the commercial yeah. but it also had something uh working on the lyric because uh there was pressure for the car to perform all right so, so uh, pressure see, drop is yeah, see what you did there <laughs> Pressure okay, drop cool. is my next one. originally done by uh, Toots and the Maytals. Not the first time The Clash covered something Jamaican. Um, not, uh, and this was something that would continue right through the sort of uh, can. I think they got, as, the, as they went on, they got more and more, uh, or, or it became more a sort of replica, or, or a more uh, true reggae. Mm. Uh, you know, definitely in some of the dub stuff in the Sandinista and everything. Um, oh yes, and then the, and the stuff with Mikey Dread. But the earlier ones like Police and Thieves, Pressure Drop, uh, and then and things like White Man and Hammersmith Pally, they were you know it was obviously influenced by the environment because uh, obviously reggae was huge in in parts of London uh, at, at that time. 
but it, but it wasn't a straight up copy. They definitely gave it their own uh, sort of twist. There's a, there's a funny story. I don't know if you know this one, but when um, when they did Police and Thieves, mm. uh, Lee, Lee Perry, who'd uh, mm. who'd produced the original Junior Mervyn one and Junior Mervyn, they were not happy at all. Mm. Oh, really? At their work being desecrated by these, you know, by these punks. But then uh, then I think the royalty checks came in. And they uh, they changed their mind after that. Okay, they were, <laughs> they were quite happy. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, I I I think it's one of the things that I admire and was very attracted to about the Clash, which was these other influences. You know, this kind of gumbo, you know, of ska, of reggae, yeah. uh, of funk, um, yeah. and uh, you know, living in New York, I I think you know I I, I felt that too. So. Yeah, I wonder because I think the Clash were never, they kind of had a really solid sort of fan base all around the world, but they were never, mm. but they were never like the biggest band anywhere. But you put it all together, you know, and they meant more to more people in more places, I think, than, you know, than, than other stuff at that time without having those number one albums or anything, you know? Yeah, because so. I think some of it is they don't have the, um, you know, back to our business, you know, reach and frequency. I think that yeah. they didn't have, you know, uh, apart from maybe Lost in the Supermarket and Casbah and Should I Stay or Should I Go, you know, what I would call these earconic songs, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, the audible icon songs that were just hammered into you, yeah. which at a certain point makes them unlistenable at yeah. a certain point. What I love about The Clash is that I can go back and I can listen to you know, Death or Glory, or I Fought the Law, or even London Calling, and it feels good. I'm not like, yeah. oh, I can't hear that song again. Yeah, but definitely, definitely London Calling. I think, you know, there's not a bad track on it. You know. Yeah. And then, uh, but I've, I've made up my own sort of Spotify version of it because I include, uh, you know, things like uh, Bank Robber and uh, Oh yes, and uh, and and things from the Cost of Living EP, you know, Spanish Bombs and stuff. So I would put up all oh, in that period. You know. the, um, it's funny because when we, when we spoke on your podcast a while ago, and we, and we talked a little bit about Sandinista. And I, I don't know if you know this, but I may only just sort of discovered this, but at, at the time of Sandinista, Mick Jones's girlfriend was Ellen Foley. Oh, who, really? Yeah. Who from had, Runaways, yeah? Uh, no, not from the Runaways. She had she had been on the Meatloaf. Oh, right, was, right, right. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So, Dead Ringer for Love and all hell. that stuff. I think or Battle yeah. of Hell. Yeah, that that was her. But um, so she'd left Meatloaf and she'd done one album, but uh, she'd done an album called Spirit of Saint Louis, and mm. a, about three quarters of the tracks were written by Strummer and Jones. And there's another, <laughs> and there's another, uh, another two or three songs written by Time and Dog, who was Joe Strummer's mate, who also appeared on Sandinista. But all of that stuff was written and recorded at the same time as as that album. So, right, so you got three albums of stuff on Sandinista plus a fourth one, which is the Ellen Foley album, which re is really mm. part part of that uh, uh, that that whole period. And you think, Jesus, you know what, a, you know creative burst you know yeah. oh my god yeah. time to just produce all of that yeah i always i always think of sandinista as uh the clashes exile on main street or uh, right. paul's boutique you know yeah 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Paul's Boutique, that was, because that, I remember, you know, I remember, you know, when the, the, the Beastie Boys and Run DMC uh, came to the UK uh, and, you know, this was kind of, I kind of knew a little bit about hip hop. You used to get these compilation albums called Street Signs. Mm. And, mm. and um, there, there was like 20 tracks on it and it was, uh, um, it was called Street Sounds Electro, right? So it was Mantronics and all that kind of stuff. But then they started to get Mantronics. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but then bits of, of of hip hop and stuff used to creep in. I remember one, The Godfather. What was his name? Was it The Godfather? Who? Uh, Grandmaster Flash or no, no, Spoonie G or something? Maybe. Hmm. No, maybe I'm getting confused. I don't know. But um, Spo Spoonie Spoonie G. Yeah, Spoonie, Spoonie G. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but it was Run DMC and the Beasties that kind of uh, you know blew that wide open. But just as everyone was getting into that, when Paul's Boutique came out, second album, it's like what? That's not what I was <laughs> expecting. You know? It's <laughs> just so good though. Yeah, you know, I, love, like, I love I love Eggman. That's a whole yeah. that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Okay, let's 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 have another tune, and then and then I think uh, I, then we'll. Um, talk about just a little bit about the impact of uh, the current health situation and everything on the industry. And so, as a sort of uh, you know, as the man at the top, you've, you've probably got a better view of uh, the macro sort of position than me. But first of all, uh, give us your third question. Well, my third is is Guns of Brixton, and right. uh, I, I have uh, which I think is just fantastic. A uh, Paul Simonon classic yeah, the uh, yeah. the bass player in the band and um i love uh, his version of it you know the original but i also love it as a little addendum to a song called broadway on sandinista oh, and there's a little yeah. girl she just oh, she just right, yeah. she sings it on the piano it's really magnificent so yeah. uh for those of you who know guns of brixton you will love it yeah. if you don't know broadway it is a fabulous song on yeah. sandinista uh, and at the tail end of it, the very, very tail end, uh, a little girl comes in and she yeah. sings Guns of Brixton. And you can tell that uh, she gets very tired. And at the end, she goes, that's enough now. <laughs> that's right. I think that is, uh, uh, it's the daughter of, uh, is it Mickey Gallagher, I think, who was yes. the keyboard player from the Blockheads. Because who, who yes. yeah. his kids, they do career opportunities as well. Uh, yes. As well. Yeah. Okay, cool, right, guns and bricks. Obviously, the big, uh, you know, the big deal of the last, you know, I think we thought it was going to last for a month, and now it looks like it's going <laughs> to two know, weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's never going to stop. Um, 
we've just gone into. Uh, so in Melbourne, they're calling it stage four lockdown, like we're supposed mm. to know what stage four means. I mean, where do mm. they go? <laughs> it's just, they have to sort of brand each intervention. You know, oh, that's a stage four, you know? <laughs> so now we've got, we've got like a curfew, so we're not allowed out, uh, you know, after six o'clock or something like that. Mm. I, mean, I live out in the sticks, so it doesn't make any difference to me. I don't go out anyway, you know, so. But, um, <laughs> but um, what's the, um, so I guess, you know, I mean, New York being arguably, you know, at least one of the three centers of the world in terms of business, industry, certainly advertising, uh, you know, densely packed population, you know, hub of sort of creativity and culture and, uh, and everything the, and then for a little while there it was um, I mean certainly the pictures that were coming back to us in Australia you know where the whole of Central Park was being turned into a sort of makeshift Field hospital, hospital. Yeah, <laughs> it looked pretty savage um, we've kind of got our own problems to worry about now so we're not we're not seeing so much of that but what's the what's the sort of current situation as you see it well, I think uh, on the positive front, uh, a lot has been mitigated. So while the rest of America is embroiled in uh, high, you know, cases and, you know, really kind of a tragic situation, New York is kind of under control, uh, which is great. Um, as an agency, you know, we've been very fortunate. We've, you know, worked with uh, the governor's office, right, you know, with Andrew Cuomo and his team. Uh, managed to crank out some nice creative for that. So uh, that was good. Yeah. Apparently being somewhat effective. We like that. Yeah. Um, but the but New York City itself, I will say uh, it's the tale of two cities. Um, and some sections are very vibrant and lively. And some sections uh, seem to be coming like 1977 all over again with, uh, you know, high instances of you know, shootings and, you know, real violence. And yeah. uh, so it's a strange time. Yeah. Well, and, and the advertising business, I mean, do you think like the bigger um, network agencies are, you know, can sort of uh, weather the storm or, uh, mm. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, here in, in Australia, what, you know, there was a lot of layoffs, right? Particularly senior people uh, all, got, all got the chop. But then mm -hmm. what they've all gone out and done is started up little little shops, you know, two or three people have banded together. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and, there's, and there seems to be every week there's new ones uh, come yeah. up, you know, and you think actually it's, uh, you know, maybe this is going to be a little correction in the market, you know, where um the smaller sort of nimble shops might stand to benefit and some of the um you know some of the the, the bigger ones might be struggling definitely not, maybe not so much in the creative uh, space but media agencies media uh, yeah are really uh, toiling um i mean we're, we're seeing some of that too i think that the uh you know covid 19 has been this uh accelerator so yeah. anything that was weak is accelerated into extinction Right. You know, so it's 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 taken anything that was not quite working and it revealed it faster that something wasn't working. Right. And if something was working, then uh, it's, it's actually working OK. So the strong, I think, are surviving yeah. and there's a bit of a, a hold fast 
mentality. And just as you're seeing around the world, there's a, you know, kind of pockets of, um, you know, people, you know, starting smaller shops. Yeah. Um, but I think in general, there's a um, hold fast is the best way I can call it. Yeah. I think I think what I'm seeing that's interesting is that uh, we've got quite a bit of work going through. We got close to 100 projects happening. Yeah. So things are happening. And I'm seeing age, other agencies producing, mm. but nothing is visible. Right. It's a bit like the music business today. People right. are making, but, but I don't know if we're feeling it, seeing it, experiencing it. Yeah. That's a good little, you know, I guess a, a segue into what I wanted to, and you probably, I mean, you've probably had to answer this kind of a, a thousand times, but, um, mm. but we'll just, we'll do it again, mm. <laughs> which is, um, because I asked um, the, uh, a friend of mine, Carl, uh, here in well in Sydney, here he he started off as a planning as a planner, planning director, and then then became MD of an agency and then CEO uh, a couple of times. And I asked him about this because it's uh, normally the sort of big agency like management jobs. It's that's normally a suit, you know, power suit would would go through that path right and then but even if you were a power creative um you know i mean you still got a route to the top by being chairman or something like something like, or chairperson um but as a as a sort of uh what was so when i talked to carl uh, about why he decided to do it he said he just got so fed up of being in agencies where he saw things wrong and and, and nobody else was going to fix it and he said right it's just i'm gonna have to do it and so that was why he decided to mm. uh, to do that. What was, um, you know, apart from things like money or whatever, but when they said to you, Rob, actually, mm. you know, this, uh, you know, this New York uh, operation needs turning around and you're the guy to do it. Um, was that something you'd been pushing for for a while or did it sort of, uh, was it just an opportunity that you thought, oh, hang on, yeah, I could probably do that. What was, uh... You know, you know, I, w I was not pushing for it. I, uh, in fact, uh, when uh, Troy Ruhanen, who took us over, uh, you know, globally as the worldwide uh, CEO, came to me um, and asked me what I wanted to do next, uh, I was kind of content to go back to Los Angeles and, you know, yeah. just be your, you know, regular creative director. Um, and I, I can give, and I'm, I'm glad we're talking music because I can give you, a, you know, a music analogy. Um, when, when I said, let me just think about it. Let me think about, you know, what, what I would do to, to, to run, uh, run New York. Um, I'd realize that, um, a creative career is, is I, I liken it to the Beatles. Right. So you, st and, I'll, and I'll, I'll do it as quickly as possible. You start out as John, you're going to light yeah. the world on fire and you don't care who gets in your way. Yeah. You uh, achieve some success and you want to be Paul. Okay, mm. I like I like being successful. <laughs> I like when people like my things, but I don't want everybody to hate me. Mm. And then at a certain point, you're like, you know what? I can do this by myself. Fuck these guys. I can do everything. You become George. You isolate mm. yourself and maybe you start your own agency. Mm. Then you get lonely and you're like, you know, I just want to be with the band. <laughs> and that's where I was. I mm. wanted to come back and just be Ringo. Mm. And uh, when I did the process of how would I be a CEO and reinvent the agency, I realized that there was a fifth level. And that level was Brian Epstein. That right. you then become the vision of the band. Mm -hmm. And can you 
uh, put together a creative enterprise. And when I realized that, I, you know, I started, you know, looking at, um, you know, someone like Quincy Jones, who yeah. went from player to producer. Yeah. Uh, Barry Gordy, I really, you know, was trying to yeah. study Motown. Uh, and I saw that uh, these were people who had, uh, you know, been creatives and uh, uh, were able to um, envision and create uh, a pop culture enterprise. And that's right. what I want to do. Yeah. That's interesting, you know, to look at. You know, rather than looking around at other advertising, it's look at other creative companies. Yes. And, and you say, well, Motown or, or something like that. Yeah. I guess, you know, Two Tones, another thing, you know, because Jerry Dammers, you know, he still, he still played in the specials while he ran all those labels and everything at the same yeah, time. Yeah. 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 And were you, I mean, how much um, normally, I mean, just in my experience, you know, if you take a spreadsheet into a creative department, <laughs> then, you know, people's eyes glaze over and kind of, uh, you know, but uh, how much for, you know, just sort of, um, you know, getting that sort of business head on, was that something you had to work at or did it, did it just sort of fall into place quite naturally? Well, I had to work on it. I, um, you know, what, what you come to realize is that running a business is a creative act. I mean, yeah. but, but you have to learn the language you, uh, you know, one, one of the things I love, uh, I've been watching The Wire lately, and I love, uh, you know, the character Prop Joe. He's got a great line. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what's business? You know, buy for a dollar, sell for two. Yeah. I mean, there's there are certain precepts yeah. that are baked in. And yeah. once you learn the language, because the language is set up to intimidate. I mean, there's mm. precision in financial language. Revenue is different than capital, is different than margin. Yeah. It's precision in that language. So I think being a writer, I appreciated the precision of language. But once you learned the language, you learned what to look for in the spreadsheet. And yeah. once you knew what to look for in the spreadsheet, it was um, uh, less intimidating and became more creative uh, uh, to understand and to understand the story uh, that the spreadsheet was saying and to understand the story that you had to tell to, uh, you know, whether it was uh, our CEO, CFO, and the board, ultimately at Omnicom. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you, have to, you have to learn it. I, you know, I went to, uh, I went to Columbia uh, for a little bit, went to, took a couple of classes. You know, I, as I tell people, you know, I went to University of YouTube. I mean, right. there's every, every university you want teaches finance 101, and you can right. start to learn the language. Yeah, yeah. Okay, another two? Another tune. Yeah. We're going to go another B-side. Another B-side. And uh, this is uh, Armageddon time. Okay. And uh, uh, again, another uh, uh, reggae-influenced one, another uh, uh, reworking of uh, someone's song. And I think yeah. the thing I loved about this thing was uh, Armageddon time showed me uh, The Clash could really do atmosphere. Yeah. It was such an atmospheric song, and that's what I was really attracted to. Yeah. Okay, Get no supper tonight. A lot of people won't get no justice tonight. And the battle is getting hard in this Irish Armageddon time. 
somewhere I've got a 12 inch uh, single of London Calling mm. and then it's got four tracks on it. It's got London Calling, Armageddon Time that was just played and then on the B side there's two further dub versions of Armageddon Time. <laughs> so so um, uh, back in the day um, when I used to be a, a club DJ if I was ever doing that, so sometimes if you know if we had some, if we had some big name, you know Todd Terry or something coming to come to play, that I'd be relegated to the warm up spot, but that was okay because <laughs> I so I could play dub and stuff like that. Just when people were sort of filing in, waiting for it to go off, you know. So I used to have two copies of the uh, London Con. I'd start off with one of the dubs of Armageddon uh, time, then weave in the sort of straight version, and, and then lead out with the third. Uh, Third dub, you know, or sometimes if you oh have... yeah, just 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 put 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 people in a trance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was okay, oh, you know, at, at sort of you know at nine o'clock at night, and there was only like four people at the bar, you know, so it didn't matter. You know? <laughs> Very good. Do you were you around? Do you remember the um the sort of uh, the legendary sort of you know whatever it was, ten days of shows at Bonds. That would have been about 79, I think. Yeah, I, w I was probably just a hair young to attend those shows. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think later on, I don't recall what year it was, but uh, I remember the Pogues playing some shows at the Roseland Ballroom. And there were shows kind of like that, you know? Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, the big venue in New York was uh, was Madison Square Garden, you know, and everybody yeah. played there. And, yeah. and I saw you know David Bowie on the Heroes tour, and uh, uh, of course Bruce I saw there, and yeah. uh, Cars I think I recall, and yeah. but not like Bonds was a you know unique theater. Yeah, I remember because uh, the few times I've been to New York, you know, it's it's kind of you know you can see all tourists going about, you know, taking pictures of Empire State Building and everything. Mm. I'm going down to try and take pictures on the corner of 53rd and 3rd, you know, because that's that's my little reference point. Yeah. And then, in, you know, Times Square, you know, I remember looking for bonds because I have to see what this place is. And, you know, and this is the last time I was there was maybe 12 years ago or something. I was kind of disappointed. I thought, oh, it looks, it just looked like a kind of, kind of pizza joint or something. It didn't, <laughs> didn't look like you know. Well, 53rd and 3rd, you know, that's a Ramones tune, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did, uh, the last time I was there as well, I met this guy, um, this guy, Russ, who, uh, when I was a club DJ back in Scotland, he used to, uh, he used to became a DJ as well later, but he used to, um, he used to help us run the, run the club and hand out flyers and everything. And then I lost, I lost touch with him uh, for many years. And then, um, and then someone said to me, oh, he lives in Brooklyn. And so I happened to be in New York, so I, I gave him a thing. Mm. And so we came and met and everything, it was great. But he took me on a sort of tour of all the things that, you know, you know like here's Charlie Parker's house. And, uh, oh, great. And, and here's the building where, that, that was the Zeppelin Houses of the Holy cover. And oh, was, fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, I said to him, you could make money at this, do a little tour of the of kind of musical. Uh, you know, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, well, that's just, it. you know, the Clash, uh, again, they were a New York band. Yeah. There's a kind of, you know, I think there, there was a very internationalness uh, about them, just the ability to sort of assimilate all different kinds of music without really worrying whether they could actually play it properly or not. It was just bring the spirit of it mm. 
I think that goes back to, uh, you know, Joe Strummer, yeah. you know, growing up the son of a diplomat. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think he, I think I heard something or read something that, uh, you know, he kind of heard the, uh, the rhythms of these Turkish, Turkish rhythms, yeah. you know, yeah. he grew up with them. And yeah. uh, I think that just must've been part of his, uh, his musical DNA. Yeah. Yeah. So just, um, <clears throat> I suppose, go, you know, going, going back to the beginning again, or thinking, so, you know, we talked in the beginning about the young Rob, uh, and you know the different influences and all that kind of stuff, but and and then we've sort of touched on the path that led you, you know, to where you are now. What would you, if you could, uh, you know, go back in time, back to that bus, you know, where you're sitting there with your Walkman, what would what would you say? Was, was there any advice you'd give to your younger self, um, or or would you just say, hey kid, you know? It's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I think I probably would have said, "Hey, kid, it's going to be good." Because I think even, you know, growing up, I, I, I'm not sure I was so sure. I think yeah. that uh, you know, I think you know, a lot of people grow up just with insecurities, and um, um, I don't know. I just always felt like I never had enough money, and I, you know. I was just always like, I just, I was telling someone the other day that, uh, I was telling my kids that, you know, when I was growing up, uh, I was always constantly calculating, you know, if, all right, if I spend, you know, this, you know, on a sandwich here, I'm not going to have enough to do, you know, yeah. buy this record there. And mm -hmm. I was kind of constantly calculating. And um, I think I would have just told myself, like, just, just relax, enjoy it more. Yeah. Uh, because it's going to be okay. And you should probably learn a lot more about music because, yeah. my God, you seem to really love it. Yeah. Well, that was the same. That was how I used to calculate money because, uh, you know, it was, you know, a seven inch single was was 50 pence, I think. Mm. Uh, so that, that was like two, you get two for a pound, right? So I think I used to do this paper round and I'd get something like £2.50 a week or whatever mm. for that. And it's like, great, that's five records. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, just going back to some girls, I remember going to Alexander's, you know, on 58th and Third uh, Avenue and buying that record for $4.99. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you, you knew the price of everything, you know. Yeah. And, uh, that's what I loved about the Clash, too. You know, San Denista, yeah. was, you know, three records for whatever it was, like 18 yeah. bucks. Yeah. It was a value. Apparently, uh, you know, it was just because uh, Combat Rock was originally going to be a double as well. Mm -hmm. You can, I think on YouTube, you can find the original mix down of that double. It was going to be called Rat Patrol from Fort Bragg. That was going to be the album. Uh -huh. uh, right. and, and so there's a whole bunch of tracks in there that never made it. But apparently, because Bernie Rhodes had come in, back in to manage the band, and he was like, oh, uh, okay. even though he was a bit flaky, he was able to look at the spreadsheets. And it was like, guys, this is not doable. We need to do one album and we need to make it a hit. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so, Bernie Rhodes. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah but he's, but he is, um, you know, by hook or by crook, he's the he's the archetype of what you can be. You know, he's a creative person running an enterprise. Rick Rubin, same way. Yeah, you know that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not the player, but you are extracting. Yeah. Uh, the creativity out of the creative people. Yeah. Uh, for good. You know, that's what yeah. that's what I saw. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, last last tune. 
Last tune, Magnificent Seven. Yes. Speaking of Sandinista. And, um, you know, I, I love this song uh, for a lot of reasons, but I think um, I listen to it to this day still. Uh, yeah. I, I remember this song being on like every boombox. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was, it was just one of those songs. But I always thought the lyric was New York, what? Don't stop, give it all you got. And yeah. I always loved it as a kind of a rally cry to New York. Well, I'd come to find out uh, when I was much older that the lyric was actually, you lot. <laughs> you lot, what? Yeah, New I mean, York. So you thought it was New York, yeah. yeah well, My narcissism was crushed, but uh, I always thought they were talking to you know us here in New York. Yeah. Uh, that's why I love this song. Now, someone should do that now. You know, do, someone should you know, do a sort of... Uh, you know, 2020 kind of version, but change it to New York. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that was another one with just with a you know, I mean, the, the tune itself was was epic, but then there was the B side, which was this sort of instrumental, uh, kind of very Latin flavored sort of dub version. You know, which was oh uh, yeah, yeah. No, when you listen to this song, just just the bass lines, amazing. Those bells. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, maybe there was something about advertising because, you know, there's a Honda and Sony in there. Yeah, yeah. But that's it. I can see why, you know, because it's almost like being in Times Square, you know, when they're just shouting mm. out, the, you know, because the, because you can just imagine the logos, you know. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Right. We're going to, I'm going to play out with Magnificent Seven. So, uh, so um, thank you very much for, for coming on and sharing a bit of, uh, of sort of you know inside baseball on the Rob Schwartz story. And, yeah, uh, fantastic. <laughs> thank you, thank you for having me. And those of you who stuck with us, thank you for listening. Okay. Right. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Ian.
Lunch bell ready, take one out, do y'all 